Hello, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever experienced a miracle? A miracle is a surprising and welcome event which is not explicable by natural or scientific laws. A miracle is God intervening in this world and doing something marvelous and unexpected. Now today as we come to Laws 25, we are reminded that in the church, God works miracles. He works the miracle of faith. Now, let's cast our minds back to the organization of the Catechism. From Lord's Day 7 through to Lord's Day 24, the Catechism has dealt with faith. In Lord's Day 7, we have the definition of faith. Then in Lord's Days 8 through to 22, we discuss the content of faith. Lord's Day 23 explains to us the benefit of faith, and Lord's Day 24 reminds us of the exclusiveness of faith. Faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Faith and nothing else. Now the church has clearly confessed from the scriptures that to be saved, to be righteous before God, all you need to do is to believe. Now, if that's all you need to do, why does the catechism ask the question there in uh, question answer 65? Why does the catechism ask, where does this faith come from? Isn't it obvious? Isn't it something that comes from us? Isn't it, at last, the one part of the process where we get to respond a little to God's grace, to contribute a little. Now the question the Catechism asks is not a strange question if you know your Bible. Because the Bible teaches us that by nature we are children of wrath. We are dead in sin. Dead. If you have your Bible handy, then Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 lays it out very well. Colossians 2, 13, that's page 984. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What's a very unpleasant truth? That outside of Christ, we're dead. Now think about that. You can offer someone who is dead all the riches in the world, but your announcement would fall on deaf ears. A dead person can't hear you offer that. A dead person can't even want to hear you offer that. They're dead. And that's how radical our situation is by nature, that we are totally incapable of even reaching forth a hand to take hold of all the blessings that God offers in Christ because by nature we are in a state of spiritual death. And what is more, not only are we incapable of accepting the promises of the gospel in Christ, but we are even incapable of wanting to accept the gospel. And that's why the Bible says what it does about those who are outside of Christ, who are perishing. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the word of the cross, the preaching of the gospel, the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, it's stupid to those who are perishing. You ever 
talk to an unbeliever and you've shared what you believe and they look at you as if you're crazy? How can you believe this stuff? It is folly to those who are perishing. Then look at chapter 2, verse 13 of this same book, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. And we impart this, sorry, it's 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, there it is again, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're discerned through the Holy Spirit. And so you understand why the question of Lord's Day 25 is not so strange after all. In fact, it's a vitally important question. If the only way to be saved is to be in Christ, if the only way to be in Christ is to be grafted into him by faith, like we read there in Romans chapter 11, then I need to know where to get that faith, because faith is what connects me to Jesus. And faith makes the difference between dying without Jesus or living in him. And so it's a treasure. It's the most valuable thing in the world. It's the difference between life and death, between eternal joy and everlasting punishment. And I need to know where to get it. And the answer, the Catechism confesses from the Scriptures that this faith is a work of God. It is a gift. And it is grace. What does Paul write to the Ephesians? He writes, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. And specifically, it is a gift of God the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts. Now let's stop there for a moment and think about that. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts. That's no normal gift. That is a miracle. Because what does the Bible tell us about our hearts? If you look at Jeremiah 17, verse 9, Jeremiah 17, 9, that's on page 645, this is what the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here we are, we're dead in our sins and trespasses, and our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And to think that the Holy Spirit takes the heart of a man, a woman, a child who is dead in sin, who is by nature God's enemy, a person whose heart is deceitful above all things, the last thing he wants is fellowship with God, the last thing he thinks he needs is salvation, and the Spirit comes and takes such a heart and graciously works new life. He replaces a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He makes this heart open and receptive to the words of the gospel. He takes those who were dead in sin and he makes them alive in Christ. And they have new life. They are born again. That is just as amazing as creating something out of nothing or raising a dead person to life. It is a miracle of cosmic proportions. To take a dead sinner and make them alive to God, to work the gift of faith and regeneration, this is an incredibly powerful work of the Spirit of God, and we need to be in awe of that power. And as we consider 
his awesome power. It teaches us the need for humility and for prayer. Humility, because as Paul says somewhere, what do you have that you have not received? If we believe in Christ, let's be very aware that this is by the grace of God. It's because the Spirit of the Lord Jesus has worked the gift of faith in our hearts. And so there's no such thing as a, as a, as a proud Christian. There's no one in the kingdom of heaven who, who is so smart and so intelligent as to consider all the options and choose in his own strength to believe in Christ. That's not how it works. Rather, God's kingdom is full of people who say, I was lost, but he found me. I was blind, but he has made me see. It was grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will bring me home. So the powerful working of the miracle of faith is a reason for humility, humble gratitude. Secondly, it teaches us the importance of prayer. Beloved, there's no recipe for bringing people to faith. There is not a 10-step marketing plan to turn people into new believers. And so if we're witnessing to people in our neighborhood, at school, at work, wherever, if you're involved in outreach, when we, a church, we as a church are involved in, in mission, whether it's close by or far away, we have to make prayer a cornerstone of our evangelism. We need to pray for our neighbors. We need to pray for our coworkers. We need to pray for the people who hear the gospel through the outreach or mission of the church because God has to do something. We can talk, we can say all the right things, and they can listen and they can hear all the right things. But God has to work the miracle. And if we know that, then we've got to be praying for that miracle to happen. I remember a woman in Brazil who was a, a daughter of God and she had been an unbeliever, a, a radical feminist who hated God and hated the faith. And she got a ride once to university with a bunch of others and amongst the people in the car was a Christian and he told her about the Lord Jesus Christ and she mocked him. And some years later, the Lord worked in her life to bring her to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He worked the miracle of faith. He brought her into contact with the gospel and changed that hard, rebellious, and scornful heart. And after she became a Christian, she, she met that young man again. It was many years later. She said, I'm so sorry. I, I remember that car ride, and I remember how I mocked you for what you believe. And he said, I've been, I've been praying for you ever since that day. It's worth praying. It's needful to pray. Not just for people out there who don't know the Lord Jesus, but for our children too. Because there's also no recipe for bringing up covenant children. You just follow the steps and it always works out. It's not a logical progression from Christian school to catechism to professional faith like we were able to celebrate just recently in this church. No, what does the baptism form say? Also our children are conceived and born in sin and also they cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Our little kids need a new heart. And we can't give it to them. And so we need to keep our children in our prayers too. 
We need to pray regularly that God would work and strengthen faith in their little hearts. We need to make prayer a cornerstone of our parenting. We need to pray that God would use the Christian aroma of our home, that he would use our instruction and admonition, our love, our example, that he would bless the Christian education in the school and in the home, that he would bless catechism teaching and the weekly preaching of the Word of God and Bible study and Christian fellowship and all those things that God uses so that more and more our children might respond in faith and that one day, God be praised, our children might stand before the congregation and say loud and clear, I do, I do believe. I do love the Lord Jesus. I do deny myself. I do take up my cross. I do commit to follow him, even to the death, to follow him into glory. Now, that's not a given. It's not something that happens naturally. There are many that can testify to it. Perhaps there are some here whose hearts are grieving because they have children or grandchildren who have turned away from the Lord. You can give your children every benefit of covenantal education. You give them a Christian home and upbringing. And yet you can grieve when you see your child go his or her own way. And sometimes it seems like all of that has made no impact at all. And you can feel so helpless. But you're not helpless. Your help is always still in the name of the Lord. And your child can never erase that mark of the promise that God has put upon their forehead and that follows them wherever they go and that is with them and on them 24-7. And so we can pray to God, plead with him based on his covenant love and mercy. It's never wasted time to get on your knees yet again and intercede for your child and pray that God would graciously grant the gift of faith and repentance. He's a God who works miracles, also the miracle of faith. Well, we know where faith comes from. The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts, but how? How does he work it in our hearts? Well, we confess from the Scripture, he works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. Now, that's a pretty radical statement. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. Think about that. We're living in a time when the preaching of the gospel is under a lot of stress. I mean, to take up 30 or 40 minutes of the worship service hearing just one person talk on and on and on. Is that really the most efficient way of doing things? It's not really seeker sensitive, right? If people come and they don't know the way we do things, how are they gonna be attracted by a monologue? Wouldn't we get better results if we switch things up? If we brought in a, a really happening band and lots of percussion, and upbeat music, and lights, and video, and multimedia, and maybe some mime, and theater, and some skits, and, and lots of entertainment to get people interested, to draw them in, to make them feel like they're having a good time, and to keep them coming back. 
Well, the trouble is, is that when the church tries to entertain, the church can never do it like the professionals. The church can never compete with the theaters and the cinemas and the entertainment complexes. It's always a little pathetic when the church tries to compete in that area because that's not the church's gift or strength or calling. A church that tries to entertain fails to be a church and fails to be an entertainment venue. You see, the church has a job to do, and that job is to preach. That's what Jesus told the disciples before he ascended into heaven. He said, go into all the world and preach. Preach the gospel to all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what God has chosen. In his infinite wisdom, this is what he has decided that this is the way that he will call people to faith, that he will make dead sinners into living children of the living God. God has decided that, to use the folly of preaching to work the miracle of faith. The reason is that the Holy Spirit uses means. That's how God works. He uses means. He works through processes and instruments and means. It's not as though someone's walking along the street someday and all of a sudden, zap from heaven. God zaps them with the gift of faith. At one minute, they're dead in their sin and they hate God and all of a sudden, they turn the corner and now they're in the middle of what they're doing. They suddenly become a devout believer. That's not how things work. God uses means. He he uses very ordinary things to work in someone's heart. He uses the influence and instruction of parents and teachers and friends. He uses the blessing of a godly home and upbringing and a faithful uh, school which educates in a godly way. But most importantly, the main means of grace that God uses is the preaching of the gospel spoken to our ears, pictured before our eyes in the sacraments. He uses something incredibly simple, one man explaining and teaching scripture, And he uses that very down-to-earth scene to work one of the greatest miracles of the universe. He uses the preaching of the gospel to work faith. Now, scriptures testify to these truths in many places. I want to just draw your attention to a couple right now. If you look at James chapter 1, verse 18, for instance, James 1, 18, just before Peter there, that's on page 1011. And this is what the scripture says, of his own will he brought us forth, being brought forth means made us be born, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's how we come to the the, the rebirth, the, the being born again, by the word of truth. And then look at Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23, I'm just going to flip a couple of pages there to 1 Peter 1 23. And here is what the scripture says, speaking about being born again, getting a new heart, being regenerated. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. Every human being is is, is conceived by the perishable seed they receive from the father and that conceives them in the womb of their mother. But you've been born again in a different way, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's what makes 
That's what gives dead sinners new life, the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and it's all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying, you were dead, now you're alive. How? Somebody preached. Somebody proclaimed the gospel to you. And when the word of God came to you, then God took you from death and made you alive. You are now reborn. That's how it works. Now, that shouldn't surprise us that the Holy Spirit decides to use the preaching of the word to work the miracle of faith should not surprise us. He's the one that inspired every single verse in the scriptures in the first place. He works with the word. You know, we've got to be careful about that. Sometimes we meet charismatic Christians, Pentecostal Christians, and they sometimes tend to make a separation between the spirit and the word. And they say the letter kills and the spirit makes a life. And they try to say, well, the letter is the Bible written, so then... We want to focus more on the work of the Spirit. That's not how the Bible works. That's not how the Spirit works. What did the Lord Jesus say to the disciples there in John chapter 14? He said this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus taught the disciples. They had a three-year seminary training. When he left, he sent the Spirit. The Spirit reminded them of his teaching. And what did they do with that? They wrote it down. And we have it right here in the Bible. The Holy Spirit gives us these words. That's the New Testament. The Holy Spirit reminding the disciples what Jesus said. And then when you see them quote the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, how often do you see that they preface that quotation by saying, as the Holy Spirit said, and then they'll quote an Old Testament text. So Old Testament and New Testament is the word of God. It is the word of God that the Spirit inspired, Word and Spirit always come together. Don't try to separate them, you'll end up in a lot of grief. Now Jesus promised the Spirit would come as we're gonna celebrate next Sunday. And he did come at Pentecost, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now some people might say, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're gonna start acting really strange and weird and start climbing the walls and swinging off the chandeliers. But what does the Bible say? Go to Acts chapter four, Acts chapter 4, verse 31, if you have your Bible at hand. Acts 4, 31. So they're gathered together. They're praying to God. And look at verse 31 of Acts chapter 4, page 912. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what happened? What happens when the Holy Spirit fills them? And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what happens. Where the Spirit is present with power, the word of God is spoken with boldness and is received with joy and is active and is living. The Spirit doesn't only act in the speaker he also works in the listener. You remember what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He said, you receive the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, and as a result, your faith in God has become known throughout the world. You remember 
what God did to Lydia there in Philippi when Paul was speaking the Word of God and the power of the Spirit, and God opened her heart to hear and receive the things that Paul was preaching. He works in the speaker. He works in the listener. And that's what's happening here every Sunday. Sunday after Sunday, we're coming together and God, the Holy Spirit, is taking the words of Scripture, those words of the Lord Jesus Christ, those words about the Lord Jesus Christ, and He brings them close to you through the preaching of the gospel, and He causes that word to penetrate into your mind, your heart, your life. That word is the power of God for salvation because the Holy Spirit of the Almighty God is using it to work in your heart, to work faith and to strengthen faith in your heart. So you can understand in the light of all of this why sometimes we call the church the workshop of the Holy Spirit. The church has been charged to preach the Word, and the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word to work the miracle of faith and repentance. That means if you want to see the Spirit at work with power, then this is the place to be. Now, there are many implications to this. If we neglect to make use of the means of grace, if we're not diligent to place ourselves under the preaching of the Word, then we are not keeping in step with the Spirit. In fact, we're quenching Him, and there can be serious consequences to this. If we're not eager and diligent to be under the preaching of the Word, then we should not be surprised when our faith weakens. And when you're struggling with sin, or when there's a problem in your life, what is one of the first things we see as pastors, elders, and ministers? What do we see? When there's a problem, the devil jumps right in there and says to you, don't come to church. Stay away, because I'm ashamed, because I'm angry, because I'm embarrassed, because whatever. And he's doing it because he hates you. And he's doing it because he knows you need to be here. And he's doing it because he knows what the power is of the Word of God, and he doesn't want you to come near it. He wants you to stray, to weaken, to fail, to fall, and to suffer more. And that's why the elders... That's why they go after us so much when we don't shop in church. Not because they're all legalistic and not because you've got to follow the rules. That's not the point. It's because they love you. And they admonish us. And they even sometimes discipline us when we despise the proclamation of God's word and the sanctity of the sacraments because the elders know what the Bible says. The Bible says this, Proverbs 19, 27, Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. And that's why we should encourage our children as well to be in corporate worship as soon as it is possible. Now, the age varies from child to child and family to family. There's no hard and set rule. Church to church has different practices. The principle, though, is the same. The church is the workshop of the Holy Spirit. And the sooner your child sits under the preaching, the preaching of the word of life, and all that goes with it, the blessing of God, when the minister brings that blessing at the beginning and the end of the service, the sacraments witnessed, proclaiming the gospel in a visible way. The sooner our children experience this, the better. Sometimes when they're very young, they might make a little bit of noise, but that's just 
the noise of covenant kids. It's a delight to hear, as long as we can still hear what's coming off the pulpit. And when we're, our kids are very young, mom and dad can summarize the sermon in just a few short sentences at home or in the car on the way home. But we ought not to underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in the little hearts of our little kids. They pick up so much more than we think. He also applies the most amazing things to the hearts, even of very little kids. You'd be surprised somewhat sometimes. What he lays upon their hearts, what they perceive, what they pick up. From the mouth of infants, he ordains praise, he ordains wisdom, says the psalmist in Psalm 8. And we can help prepare the hearts of our little ones to be fertile soil for the gospel by showing a joy in going up to worship, by speaking of the importance of worship and preaching with our children, by explaining to them that the, the miracle that the Spirit works through the preaching of the gospel. When we're under the preaching, what are, what are our kids seeing? If they're seeing dad and mom saying, I want to hear the voice of God. I want to hear the voice of the good shepherd. I want to follow him. I need this to live. Or... If they're seeing mom and dad saying, when is this going to be over? It's already dragged on long enough. The kids, kids will pick up on that. Now that will make a difference about what they think about preaching and about the work of the Spirit. Now sometimes we fall into the error of wanting to get all practical. And we think, well, little kids, you know, like they're more tactile. And, and so it's a lot better to put them in another room and have some finger paints and some puppet, puppet shows and, and some felt boards and, and kind of do things at their level, they're going to get a lot more out of that. You know, that seems so reasonable, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound reasonable? I mean, put little kids, I mean, a lot of psychiatrists, a lot of psychologists, would, their hair would stand up on end of what we were making our kids do, sit quietly for more than an hour. How can you do that? But think about it. Children, what do you think about that? If you're going to go to a wedding, and mom and dad say to you, the little kids, oh, you're just a little kid, so you can't be in the room where the wedding is happening because you're so little, we're going to stick you in the church basement, or if you don't have a basement, another room, and you're going to watch a puppet show about the wedding. There's going to be a little bride puppet and a little groom puppet, and you'll watch the puppet show while we get to go to the real thing. What do you think, kids? Is that, a good, is that a good solution? I don't think so, right? You want to see the real bride and her real dress and the real groom, and you want to be where the real thing is happening, and that's the same thing with worship. In public worship, real things are happening, and the Spirit is working through the preaching and the sacraments. So this is all kinds of consequences for our evangelism for also bringing up our children. It also has implications for liturgy and worship. If the only way to share in Christ and all his benefits is to have faith, and if faith comes only from the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts through the gospel, then the church has to be very insistent that the preaching of the gospel is a central element of worship. If we cut back on preaching, if preaching gets hidden underneath all kinds of innovations, then the church stops being a workplace of the Holy Spirit and becomes a place to socialize, to show off your talents, to entertain, or to be entertained. 
It will keep the form of religion somewhat, but will deny the power thereof. And this is an imperative point. In a time when intense pressure is being brought to bear on the Reformed worships of us, we have to remember that God has not ordained faith to come through skits and testimonies, praise choruses, children's stories, theater, PowerPoint presentations, whatever. Rather, this is what God says, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And as long as the word of Christ is central in our lives, in our worship, then we will see miracles happening. We will continue to see our little kids growing up and miracle of miracles respond in faith to the gospel which has nurtured them all their life. And we will see others who miracle of miracles are drawn to Christ and come to faith because God draws them from outside the covenant and blesses them by working faith in their hearts as they sit under the preaching of the word and we see people come to us from outside of this immediate community and we say, well, why? What brings you here? And they will say, I hear the voice of God. I hear the voice of the good shepherd, and I want to follow him. In other words, as long as the word of Christ is central in our lives and our worship, we will see the Holy Spirit working wonders among us, not the wonders of the false miracle workers of pseudo-Christianity, but real wonders, the wonders of which the Scriptures speak, the wonders of faith, hope, love, humility, communion, fellowship in the Spirit, grace, repentance, reconciliation, and sanctification. Beloved, let's stick to what the Lord has told us, what He has instituted and ordained, what He has commanded Go and preach and baptize, he said. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. He has given us the word preached. He has given us the word made visible in the sacraments. And both the word and the sacraments, when they are administered faithfully, are sure signs that God is surely at work among us. When the word and the sacraments point to Christ, and to him alone, then miracles will keep happening in this church. The miracle of faith and repentance worked in the heart. The miracle of faith in Christ confirmed and strengthened week after week. The miracle of those who by nature are dead in sin being made alive in Christ and being united with him more and more through the work of God the Holy Spirit. Amen.